1: Bianco.
0: What does it mean to earn the right? In the world of professional public speaking and presentation, it means that the presenter lets the audience know up front why they should listen to him or her. What qualifies the speaker as an expert who can solve people's problems and help them get what they want? Hey hello storytellers and welcome to another episode of change your story change your life I'm your host Louis DiBianco We're fortunate that our host Audible is enriching lives they are offering you our storytellers a free audiobook download of your choice plus a 1 month free trial of all of Audible service and you get to choose for more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you so keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at com. Today's guest has earned the right to show you how to master the game of generating high-quality referrals and how to create an exceptional client experience that can explode your business. She's a highly successful entrepreneur a certified productivity and time efficiency coach and an expert at sales and marketing she's also a wife and mother to three children get pumped up to meet stacy brown randall stacy welcome to change your story change your life
1: thank you lewis i'm very excited to be here
0: then let's have some fun and let's start at the beginning where were you born stacy
1: I was born in Greenville, South Carolina, which is, if you're familiar with this state, it's one of the larger cities in the state, though South Carolina is a smaller state. So some people may not be familiar with it.
0: I've been to, um, I keep forgetting if I was in North or South Carolina. Where are the Blue Mountains?
1: So most of them are in Asheville and above in North Carolina. But there are some mountains in South Carolina. It's up above Greenville.
0: So I think I was in North Carolina visiting friends and uh, uh, I remember it being a very, very beautiful part of the world.
1: It is. It is gorgeous. We have four seasons and though the summers can be pretty severe, the winters usually are not. So that makes it kind of nice.
0: Yes, indeed. So when you were growing up, who would you say was the strongest influence on you as a kid?
1: So I think my entire life, I would have easily answered that question with my father. And he was a very strong influence on me. He was, you know, he is, I don't say was, he is, he is a, has a very commanding presence. And he definitely invested in his children and wanted that. I have an older brother and wanted the best for his kids and had some very specific lessons he wanted to make sure that we learned, which was, you know, just, I don't care what you do with your life, just make sure you're going to be independent. And of course, if you're going to argue with me, bring your facts, not your emotions. So he was, he had this huge presence on my life, but I always had this silent presence that I never really paid attention to when I was younger that actually came from my mom. I assumed my competitive nature and my competitive drive came from my father. And I told my dad that one day and he was like, are you kidding? He was like, that totally comes from your mom. (laughs) Your mom would take on any kid on the schoolyard, boy or girl to play any sport and so, I think that both of my parents have had great influences on me, just in different ways.
0: What did your dad do?
1: At, for for a living? Yeah. Well, he was actually an author.
0: Oh, what did so he write?
1: He, he didn't start out. He's a fiction author. His name is Steve Brown. You can find him in bookstores and, of course, on Amazon. But he didn't start out as an author. I think he always, you know, inside his own mind was always writing stories and he's a great storyteller and he loves history. He's actually a history major when he went off to college. I mean, but he got out of college and became a salesperson, right? So he sold insurance for one point, he sold radio ads for radio station, he DJed some as well. Um, But you know, I knew him before I was around and then when I was really little, he was the sales guy whether it was insurance or it was radio sales and then over time as my mom's career grew um then he actually stayed home with us but he wrote and so it was like having a stay-at-home dad who still kind of had a job um and so he started writing how I don't know I think it was in middle school when he got really serious about it and then he had his first book published I think after I graduated college um and so he went on a series of just self-publishing he had a lot of close deals, close movie, close movie deal and some other close deals happened. And finally he was like, I just want to get these stories out into the world. So he actually started publishing his own book. He's got about 20 plus books published now and they're all fiction. And the majority of them, though, not all, the majority of them have a very strong female lead, um, in the, as, as a character in the book.
0: Give me a title.
1: Sure. So there is his Susan Chase murder mystery series. Um, and so those books are, um, really great. Some of his more popular ones i think other than susan chase murder mystery series um is um the bells of charleston so he has some great books with the bells of charleston and um he i would say one of his most famous books i think i think the actually it's called carolina girls and that's the one that most people um seem to gravitate towards um so Carolina Girls is one that you can definitely look up. It's his name again is Steve Brown, but you'll also find his Bells of Charleston, like the Charleston vampire and things like that. It's how the first vampire made it to the New World. Um when Charleston was, you know, just back a long time ago when it was a port city. And so you'll have the Bells of Charleston series and then also the Susan Chase murder mystery series. And those can be found. You just go to Carolina Girls and then you'll find him you'll be able to find his other titles.
0: It's fascinating. And you say your mom had a career. What did she do?
1: She was in sales. So my mom was an excellent salesperson. She made President's Club every year. And I think it's the funniest thing to tell what she did is she sold forms in paper. Like when you go to the hospital and fill out all those forms, that is what she would sell to hospitals and other companies, their order forms, their intake forms. She would, you know, sell you on, like getting those printed and getting those back to you. (laughs) I just think it's so funny, but... She was, and she was really good at it. And so she did that for a number of years and then retired.
0: Wow. That is impressive because no matter what you're selling, you're never selling the thing. You're selling uh, some benefits, and you've got to make it sexy. So she had to take forms and paper and make it sexy.
1: She did, and I remember when she was retiring and she was training the guy, uh, she called him the kid, that was coming in behind her. And she was showing her markups and her margins on those forms. And he'd be like, you can get that much money? And she's like, yes, I'm worth it. (laughs) So what about the form? She's like, yes, I'm worth it. And so she did. She um, was really great um, at that, having that career. And it was really cool to kind of watch her. Um, And, you know, I would say, you know, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, that was not normal to have a father who stayed at home and a mother who was the breadwinner and worked um, But, you know, it really worked well for our family. And it wasn't as if my father hadn't, you know, as people would say, done his part. He certainly did. Um, so it's just an interesting dynamic, I think, to our families. And my parents always say that when I went off to college, I came home and I said, you guys are really weird. And they'd be like, why? They're like, I was like, well, first of all, you're still married. And second of all, mom works and you stay home. <laughs> so it was just a different, I guess, uh, childhood.
0: Well, you know, what's interesting. We're going to get into this later when we talk about what you do, you define yourself as a contrarian, and what you're describing is a contrarian family environment. Definitely. That's that's interesting. Now, I'm always fascinated. Did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Because very often, people who do end up being something else. (laughs) Right.
1: And that is true in my case. I definitely had a childhood dream. I wanted to grow up to be the next Katie Couric. So I wanted to be the host of the Today Show or one of the nightly news programs or the morning news programs. That was my dream. I actually mean that. And that dream actually carried me all the way through college. I went to a university specifically because they had a strong broadcast journalism program and that was my major in college and I did it and I had job offers coming out of college. Um, I kind of started leaning a little bit more towards the weather, and so from that perspective, I think that um, you know, I don't know if I would have done the weather for say because I'm not really crazy about science, but I, you know, in the in the journalism program, you actually spend a semester actually putting on a live uh, broadcast, and that allows you to also um, have the opportunity to be seen by other stations. And I had a couple job offers coming out of school to be like a weekday reporter and weekend weather anchor. And I walked away from it all um, to take a different job, to go a different uh, direction, because I just knew that's not what I wanted to do forever. To my parents being like, what? We just put you to college for four years to do this. And all of a sudden you're walking away. And they say that those internships and what you think you want to do are really key. And they're not kidding. After spending a summer interning at a news station kind of told me straight up, this is not actually how I want to start my career.
0: Good. You knew. But then you went into the corporate world, did you not?
1: I did. So, you know, like I think like most people, right? I mean, I graduated and I needed to get a job. So, you know, I kind of I I knew I had two opportunities. So I went to the University of South Carolina, which is in Columbia, South Carolina. That's the capital of South Carolina. And in the southeast, the two best journalism schools are Georgia, University of Georgia and the University of South Carolina. So I went to the University of South Carolina, I graduated, I had job opportunities in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Charlotte, North Carolina. And what's interesting is the job opportunity in Atlanta paid $10,000 more. But I just knew there was something about the job opportunity in Charlotte that was going to give me more exposure and more opportunity. And so I took that job, making less money, and moved to Charlotte after graduating. And I've been here ever since. And it truly was, I think, the best decision that I could have made. But I started looking for jobs in the nonprofit sector because, to be honest, it's one of the I thought at the time it was one of the easier places to get an in for a job. But also because I had done so much volunteer work while I was in college, it was actually a natural fit. But I knew I didn't want to stay there forever. But I knew I needed a job, so I kind of started out in the nonprofit world and then moved into like our chamber of commerce in Charlotte and worked for a magazine for a while, back to the chamber of commerce, and so. And then eventually I went out on my own with my first business. But I mean, when people are like, so you got a job? And I was like, yeah, because that's kind of what you did. And I needed to be able to pay my rent. <laughs>
0: what, so, what, what actually was the job?
1: So the very first job out of after school, uh, after school, the first job after college was I was the assistant director of a lobbying firm. It was called the Hosp- Hospitality and Tourism Alliance. My family has, comes from the hospitality industry. My grandmother at one point owned five restaurants my, um, eventually my mother would work in one of the restaurants and run it for her as she got older. My brother now owns that restaurant. He had his own restaurant before then. My uncle in restaurants I have another uncle that's in hospitality in Myrtle beach, owning a uh, timeshares and running a timeshare, um, company. And so I've kind of always been exposed to hospitality. So it was a natural fit. I knew something about the hospitality industry. I could tell the story as why I was working at the HTA. And that was the first job out of college, and then I just kind of moved um, every couple of years, moving up and being promoted or looking for the next opportunity, and probably moved to three or four more companies after that before I went out on my own.
0: Now, what did you love and hate about the corporate world? Because uh, most most people who become entrepreneurs, I find, eventually find that they just don't want to fit in. I wouldn't say they don't fit in, they just don't want to fit into. um that kind of structure the corporate structure
1: it's it's very true for me i to be honest when i sit around thanksgiving right we sit around the the table with family extended family at thanksgiving or christmas i am actually surrounded by entrepreneurs so the idea of becoming one is not new it's not shocking in our family it's definitely encouraged um i would still say some some people in my family can't articulate what i do because i you know i don't run a restaurant right or like my dad i'm not an author so it, I think it's sometimes a little harder for them to articulate exactly what it is that Stacy does. But I would say, you know, the idea of owning my own business one day was always something that I knew I could do. I did, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that's why corporate America or just getting a job, right, was such a draw for me because it was just a time for me to learn. And I think that's what I liked the most about it. And I think hindsight's twenty twenty, and I can reflect back on that now is I did. I learned a lot. I grew my network. In this area which definitely helped as I moved through positions and I learned so much I think it informed a lot of who I am and what I stand for and what I believe Um, there have definitely been some situations in my corporate journey where I had to take a stand that would have probably been opposite of you know what my boss would have done I actually left a job um, because I didn't care for the moral side of what of some decisions that were being made they didn't jive with kind of who I was as a person But the truth is I knew I wanted to own a job, but you can't – I knew I wanted to start a company, but you can't just start a company if you don't know what you want to do. And so I really did took that time, uh, and I spent most of my 20s, you know, working different positions and just exposing myself to different opportunities and kind of looking for the next thing that I wanted – And I think that was really beneficial and what I loved about corporate America, but it was everything else that I didn't like and I didn't care for, you know, and I, it's the silly things, which are actually big things in my mind, like the dress code, like, you know, being told what to wear and how to wear it and, you know, kind of what that looks like. It's meeting somebody else's expectations, even, especially when you can't just, you can't figure out why those expectations matter. It just, it is. And so you just need to meet those expectations. Um, But it was also the bigger things. Like I really couldn't wrap my arms around politics. I don't play politics well. I am very much a straight shooter and I'm not afraid to tell you what I think. And sometimes that would get me into trouble. I definitely learned some hard lessons in my 20s in terms of, you know, a little emotional intelligence as well. Um, but then also the, I think the thing I struggle with a lot in corporate America, it's just the favoritism, the politics and the favoritism. And there are companies out there that don't have that. I just never had the opportunity to work for those companies before I decided to go out on my own and start my first business, which would kind of, you know, push me down this journey of being an entrepreneur.
0: Oh, I hear you clearly and loudly. I, um, I worked in the academic world for a while. And the similarity is that you're surrounded by bureaucracy and politics, and it's deadly. And like you, I was too outspoken and didn't play the political game well. I loved what I did because I was creative. But um, yeah, it's hard when you have a lot to give and you're very talented and uh, you find yourself in a situation like that. Now, I've heard it said that we must fail our way to success. And how does this apply to you?
1: So it's interesting where I am today is a direct result of that very first business that I started. So once I figured out what I wanted to do and what it was going to look like and I was going to put my, you know, my flag in the ground and start my own business and leave corporate America behind, that business would be an HR consulting firm and it would fail almost five years later. And that failure taught me so much. It was such a painful journey to go through. And unfortunately, it was more painful than it needed to be because I let it die a very slow death. <laughs> I wasn't really ready to let it go because the truth was was when that business failed, I knew, or as it was failing, I knew I didn't know what I was going to do next. And where I was going to find myself was in needing to get another job. And all I could think is how much I did not want to go back to corporate America. But that's what I ended up having to do. I had to go take a job for a great company, not a perfect company, for a great company, but not in a role that worked for me. And so while I took, while that first business failed and I had to take a, a job, everything I learned from that business failure and what I picked up when I took that job in between, I really think God positioned me exactly where he wanted me, even though I was miserable. Um, he really positioned me in a place to, to start business number two, which is the business I have now going on five years. And it is in an entirely different place and it's doing something I never thought it would do Um, you know it started out one way and it's morphed over time into something totally different which has been awesome and I always like to say that business number two is kicking business number one's butt (laughs) so it's just all those lessons learned have totally informed the success that I'm having now Um, I just have to make sure that I'm careful to remember those lessons and to not forget them and with a business failure Clearly in the rear view mirror, I can still see it though. It doesn't matter how many years have gone by. Um, I can still see that failure clearly in the rear view. So whereas I don't let it define me, um, but failure is scary and it's scarier than any risk I would take moving forward. And so having that in the rear view, it definitely is that swift kick in the hiney that I may need from time to time when I find myself getting complacent. Um, which is really, I think, powerful as an entrepreneur. I think it's nice to have a trigger point that'll kind of motivate you when you, it, you're you finding it hard to motivate yourself. And yes. it's definitely allowed me to innovate.
0: Yes, indeed. Now, what were the most valuable lessons that you learned from that failure?
1: So there were three that I would say were most important. And the first one is, is to protect your mindset. And so when I decided to get into business, I was four weeks pregnant and didn't know it. And so it's not the ideal way to start a company. Just in case anyone's wondering, I would not recommend any female in particular start a business that way. But I left my corporate job, I was four weeks pregnant. I actually went and joined a firm as an equal third partner for one new division they wanted to start. And I would do that for about, um, about a year. What, then my son would be born. Again, that's, we're not talking maternity leave or anything like that. I was a, you know, a full-on 100% commission partner in that regard. And then I would have a client that said, you should go do this on your own. So then a year later when my son was four months old, I, would st- I started my own business. And then I, that's the business that I would continue that would eventually fail after a number of years. And so you know, the one lesson that I learned that was really important is the mindset one. And that mindset one is, is that because I had a newborn and then an infant, right? And then a toddler when I started this business, I would find myself sometimes talking to other people, well-meaning, I know, because these are not bad people, that would say, it's okay if you're building a lifestyle business, Stacy, right? Like almost giving me permission to not shoot for the stars and to, it, to be okay to decide to do laundry at three o'clock in the afternoon so I could get a head start on it or to pick up my son early from childcare or not have the babysitter come so that I you know, could spend time being a mom versus building my business. And I allowed those thoughts to penetrate why I was doing what I was doing. Now, the truth is those thoughts weren't the only thing that led to the demise of my business, but it definitely was a part of that. Another lesson that I learned um, that I would say, these kind of combinations of lessons, right? It's not just one thing that led to the demise of business number one. It was all three of them. And the second thing that I learned is is that you cannot think about scalability when you're drowning. So you have to be thinking about scalability early on. And when you're drowning and then you're trying to innovate and you're trying to scale and you're trying to do these last-ditch efforts to make it work, It's just the wrong time to be thinking about it. It's not the wrong time to be doing it, but it's the wrong time to be thinking about it when you're running out of bandwidth to be able to do anything. I just started too late. I I captured the failure. Even though I knew it was there, I decided to face it too late and decided I needed to figure out how to scale to to be more successful when I should have been having that conversation all along. And that's a big difference with the business of today. And then the third thing, which I think is the most critical lesson that I learned, is that you better come up with a way to touch business development every day. And I don't know what every day looks like for every person, right? For some people, it's just weekly, but most of it's, it's weekly or, or um, weekly or daily. But you better figure out a way to bring in new clients to fill your pipeline of prospects every day. And when I say that, what I mean is you better figure out a way to do it that you're willing to do, because there are so many dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways to bring in clients and to bring in prospects, but you better figure out the one you're willing to do over and over and over again so that you can get good at it and that it can actually become a steady stream of, of the, into the pipeline that you're relying on. And unfortunately, when I looked back at my first business, what I realized was, is that not one of those clients that I had generated had come through a referral. Not one. I mean, they mostly came through hardcore networking, which is exhausting and takes a ton of time. And, you know, and I had done the publicity route. I had articles published and, you know, very well-respected publications in my field. I had been interviewed by Bloomberg News. I had been on radio shows and other shows. You know, I, if you looked into that business, you would have thought, wow, she must be doing great. I had big name clients. But when you looked back at how I how I had landed all of those, none of them came through a referral. They all came through pounding the pavement a lot of pounding the pavement and a lot of mailing and emailing to to people who were just cold that i may never hear from and so i never wanted to do it because it was a ton of work and i had small children i would go on to have a second child um while that business was still in its infancy and and then i would also decide to go to grad school at the same time and so from that perspective i didn't figure out a way to touch it every day that worked for me and it took that business failure for me really to wrap my arms around that and really decide okay if you get a second chance Stacey, what are you going to do different? Like, what does this look like? What are you going to do different? Because business failure number two really shouldn't be an option.
0: Well, it sounds to me like what you were learning was that you needed to really be strict with yourself about setting strong priorities.
1: Definitely. and the pri- But here's the thing that I learned about myself. And I don't know if this makes... Uh, This is a positive or a negative. I don't know if this is a strength or a weakness in me. But the truth is, is that it's really hard for me to motivate myself to do something that I don't want to do. It just is.
0: That's, I think that's...
1: I'm normal, right? I
0: I think that's healthy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But unless it leads to a business failure because you just don't want to do, right? What you need to do. So what I have learned is, look, I'm not going to do what I don't want to do. But that doesn't mean right, that I get a pass on doing the work. It just means I have to be willing then to do the work to find another way to make it happen. And that's what I set out to do. And I would have never guessed it would have been so much easier and so much better if I could have just figured out referrals the first go round with my business but that's ultimately what happened. And so the fact that I won't motivate myself to do something I don't want to do, I just won't, right? Sometimes those are good things. Like, it's really hard for me to motivate not to drink Starbucks. Like, I just want my daily Starbucks. And I don't even like coffee. So my Starbucks is full of sugar. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's completely not healthy. I'm getting none of the coffee benefits that they say you can get, right? And so, you know, it's really hard for me to motivate myself to things I'm, I just, it just either happens. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do this. Right. It's like when I gave up Coca-Cola, like, okay, I'm just going to do this. And then I just did it. I got to a point and I just did it. But it's the same thing with like building my pipeline or bringing in clients. Like I better figure out a way that I want to do this because if I can't, I am going to be sunk again. And that is a motivator for me, but it still motivated me to figure out what I was willing to do. It didn't motivate me to do the things that I knew I could do that I didn't want to do.
0: Mm Hmm. You know, are you familiar with Astro Teller? I don't think so. He um, he's in charge of Google X, and I heard him um, recently in a brilliant webinar. Actually, it was at a, a live presentation, but it was being streamed. And his policy at Google is to they celebrate failure, and he actually has created a culture where he won't hire people who are not open to failing. He encourages them to fail. And when people fail, they actually celebrate because they encourage people to correct and continue until they work their way to success. And, you know, with your talk about learning from failure, I thought that, you know, would have some um, application you oh, absolutely. Res- yeah, you resonate with that. Do you?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's such a, a rare thing to find within companies. I think that, you know, the fact that I have a mindset that, hey, failure is it's it's not a definer of who you are, but it better be an educator of what you want to do different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such a key thing to what you're talking about with him is, is that that whole idea of if we celebrate it, it can't negatively define us. But also, what's the point of celebrating it if we're not going to pull the lessons from it?
0: Oh yeah, exactly. I, yeah, right. that's the reason they celebrate it. Yep. But they get they get people to stop judging themselves. Oh my God, <laughs> I am a failure. I mean, it goes back to the same idea that uh, uh, Zuckerberg had. Uh, Zuckerberg had with Facebook, where his motto was, "Move fast and break things." Right. I think it was also Steve Jobs, you know, move quickly and break things, which means, yeah, I mean, try different stuff. It doesn't work. Great. Try another one. Try another one. Now tell us about giving away all of your business suits.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love this story. So when I made the decision, when I started business number two, right? So let me just give the kind of chronological background. Business number one fails. I had to take a job. It was miserable. I was there almost 18 months. Um, again, great, wonderful company. Really like the CEO, like some of the people I worked with, but wrong fit for me. So many things about that position were wrong for me. Um, and then I, I, while I was there... I got certified as a productivity coach, a productivity and time efficiency coach. And it's just something I did on the side. I wanted to do it for myself. I started coaching a few of the people inside the company that were curious about what I was doing. And so I became a productivity coach. And so when I left that business, I started a productivity and time efficiency coaching practice. That was business number two. Now, that business has completely morphed into a different version of itself. But eventually, I would become a business and productivity coach. And when I started business number two, to be honest, I hung on to all my corporate suits. And I'm not one of those people who has like super expensive corporate suits, right? So it wasn't like I had like a lot of emotional money <laughs> tied up in these suits, but I had needed them. And I had to, have to go back and I had, to have bought, I had to buy some of them when I had to take that job after my first business failed. So for me, those suits hanging in my closet and they took up a section of my closet, they were there always as a reminder that, Hey, if this one failed too, like the first one did, I can always get a job. And there's my suits that I can wear when I go back to that job, because more than likely I would end up in a job that expected me to wear a suit. And so having those suits hang in the closet, I, I, there was a part of me that was like, but I'm never going to wear them again. Like I just don't want to have to wear them again. And so I You know, it wasn't right away. It was after my business had gotten started and it was starting to show some success. I'll be honest. It was starting to show some success. And, you know, I was seven months in when I stripped my um, or I outstripped my corporate salary. So I knew that this business was going to be so much better than the first business I had had. And so when I was looking at where this business was headed, I decided that I needed to get rid of the what I felt was like the albatross, right? The hanging around my neck, this thing that reminded me that I could retreat if I needed to. And it became like the safety net. And there it was in my closet every single day reminding me that, hey, if you fail, it's totally fine. You got all these suits you can go wear. So I made the decision to donate all of my suits. And I, I mean, I kept one, right? Like just in case I needed funerals, things like that, right? So I kept one and I pulled out all of my suits. And I donated them. I gave them to an organization that we have here in Charlotte. I think it's nationwide. I'm not sure, but it's called Dress for Success, and they take gently used suits to give to women who are, you know, trying to interview for their first job so they have the right clothing to wear. So I donated all of my suits and a lot of my jewelry. And I just said, this isn't who I want to be, and this isn't who I want. This isn't who I want to be, and this is not who I want to allow myself to become again. And so I did. And it, I call it a burn the boats moment. Where I went in and I said, okay, we are not accepting retreat. We have to succeed at all costs because now I'm going to remove these suits. And if I, now I'm going to remove these suits and get rid of them. Now, Lewis, let's be honest. If my business failed and I had to go get another job, I could go buy more suits, right? So, I mean, the reality is, let's put this in context, but that wasn't what it was about for me. For me, it was removing the daily visual that I could retreat if I had to. And I desperately didn't want to retreat. And I was starting to have success. So my confidence was only building and only continued to build over the years. So I took all those suits and I got rid of them. And I call it, you know, and I didn't come up with the term burn the boats. But for me, it was my burn the boats moment. Now, I've had more burn the boats moments over time with this business that have been just as scary, I would say, if not as scary as getting rid of a bunch of my suits. But for me, it was that ability to just say, nope, not going back, no retreat, move forward.
0: Well, I absolutely love it because what you're describing is profound. And it, this is at the heart of changing your story and changing your life. And it's not a small gesture. Um, one of the world's leading experts on tidying up is very, very uh, adamant about clearing your space of all sorts of things that you just think are things, but they are connected to you emotionally. And when you let them go, a psychological and emotional freedom happens. And so that's what was happening with you. And that's very, very powerful. You can't change your story until you're willing to take that step. Can you tell our audience where the expression burn the boats comes from?
1: Certainly. So it actually comes from history. Um, so a little throw out, throwback for my father, right? So it comes from history. Uh, there was a Spanish explorer and conquistador. His name was Hernando Cortez, and this was back in like the 1500s. So he decided that he wanted to seize the treasure that the Az- Aztecs had been hoarding, and I don't can't remember exactly where this was that they were headed, um, but they were after to take over this land that they wanted. They wanted the treasure that was in this land, and so he took um, 500 soldiers right, about 100 sailor, sailors, and the big thing is they had 11 ships, so he had these 500 soldiers and these 100 sailors on these 11 ships, and so they were, you know, headed to this land, and they were going to, you know, raid this land of all the treasures, and so he had a huge army under his command, but the reality of it is, is that when he got to where they were going, right, they realized that they were completely outnumbered, like that was a huge and powerful empire that the Aztecs had, and so he was completely outnumbered, And so some of the men started talking amongst themselves and they started saying, "You, you, this is crazy. We may not win, right? Like we may just need to get out of here. Like, let's just get on these ships and get out of here. And so when Cortez got wind of the plot, right, to kind of take some of the ships and escape, he was like, no, that's not the option, right? He wanted to make sure that the men were completely committed to the mission and the quest for the riches. And so... For most of us, he did something completely insane. And that was he ordered that all the ships be burned. So out of the 11 ships, they destroyed 10 of them. He kept one because there had to be some ship to take home the riches, right? And so they got rid of all the ships. And the question was, right, and what he was posing to his men was this idea that if we're not 100% in, right, if we're not all or nothing, or 100% committed, committed, and we always know we can retreat, then we won't fight like we're hundred percent committed. We won't all be in. And his big thing was, is that we're either going to conquer as heroes or we're going to die, but we're not going to retreat. And so the ships were sunk, right? They were completely gotten rid of. And the idea there is, is that they then succeeded because they had no retreat option. And so they had to commit and they had to move forward and they were successful.
0: What's really powerful about that is that it is a, um, a deep psychological lesson in what's necessary to change a person's inner story. That what stops us is that our minds want to know an outcome that is attractive to us. And what you're being told by a deeper voice is there is no guarantee. And if you want to determine a great outcome, The only way to do it is to throw yourself in 100% and risk losing everything.
1: Yes. And that's, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and I think sometimes, I don't think every decision we make has to have the throw ourselves in fully, but I think there are moments in our, as we're changing our story, right? I think there are moments where we know that's what we need to do or we'll never fully commit. I mean, sometimes I think it's smart to dip our toe in before we put our foot in before we put our, you know, up to our knees, right. But sometimes you just know that if I don't do this, that will be the thing that holds me back.
0: And that Mm. won't
1: allow me to change and where I'm headed. So I, I think it's also kind of weighing out, you know, is this the burn the boats moment or kind of, you know, is it not? And sometimes we just, I just think, you know, I just think our gut. And the who we are as people will just speak to us. And a burn the boats moments for me, I mean, Lewis, could be completely different for you. Something I could say, this is a burn the boats moment. You'd be like, yeah, that's just an average Saturday and I'm cleaning out my closet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like our burn the boats moments are different based on who we are and the stories that we already have.
0: Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. So tell us about how you developed your um, expertise in referral marketing.
1: So the interesting thing about, Where I found myself when it comes to helping people generate referrals, and as you mentioned earlier, to do it in a completely contrarian way, but where I came from was out of sheer necessity. When I actually took time to look back on business failure number one, and I figured out those three major lessons that we talked about that I had learned, and I kind of honed in on the, okay, we got to touch business development every day, big lesson learned, great, now we're starting a second business, what are you going to do different, And how am I going to touch business development every day? I really focused on the fact that in my first business, not one client had come through a referral. And I had big name clients in that business like KPMG and BDO, some of the larger accounting firms. You know, I had Snyder's Lance back when they were just Lance Snack Food, Coca-Cola Consolidated Bottling, one of the largest bottlers for Coca-Cola, City of Charlotte. Like I had big name clients and not one had come through a referral, which means I had worked entirely too hard to land all of that business. And I started paying attention to what referrals were, So, right? So I'm like, okay, so I didn't generate anything by referrals. I'm hearing people talk about referrals. I want some of that, right? I want some of those. So let's figure out how you do it. So then I started paying attention as I'm growing my productivity and my business coaching practice. Then I started paying attention to the advice that is out there on generating referrals. And to be honest, I didn't like what I heard. The advice that they provided on how to generate referrals meant that I had to go ask for them. I had to ask the people that I knew. I had to ask the people that I was meeting for the first time. I had to ask the clients that I was or the prospects I was meeting with trying to have them become clients. And if they became a client, I needed to ask them. And even if they didn't become a client, I still needed to ask them for referrals. And again, as we learned earlier, I can't make my do something, I can't make myself do something I don't want to do. And that felt like a really, really close, the whole asking for that referral in any and all situations felt a lot like a cold call. And I'm not going to cold call and I've done it and I'm terrible at it and because I don't want to do it. I don't like what it represents and I don't like the position it puts the person in on the other end. And a lot of people will tell you that's just Stacy's head trash or that's just anyone's head trash, but it's not. If the majority of people don't want to ask and the majority of people don't want to cold call, I fundamentally think then there's something wrong with that practice. And so when I paid attention to, okay, everyone's telling me I have to ask and I don't want to. And from when I talk to people, nobody wants to. Why hasn't someone come up with a different solution? And But I wasn't thinking big picture then. I was just thinking, whatever, I just need this to work for me now. And so I kind of created my business as a guinea pig and I started trying different things that would allow me to generate referrals. And to be honest, I wasn't quite sure what I was creating. I just knew I was having success. Well, it just so happens the people that I was coaching – for business coaching and productivity coaching, they happen to be small business owners. I mean, that's my tribe. Those are my people. And so they were small business owners. They were solopreneurs and they were watching my practice grow. They were watching it become harder to get on my schedule. They were watching me go from coaching five days a week to four days a week to two days a week. They were watching me raise my rates on them multiple times. And they were saying that people were still staying on my, you know, on my coaching Calendar, even as I raise my rates. So they're paying attention to these things that are happening because some of it was happening to them. They're like, okay, you've raised your rates three times. Like, what's happening? And I started explaining how, well, you know, when you have an increase of demand, you can make some choices that you can't make when you're starving for business. And they were like, so what are you doing? And I was like, well, business comes really easy to me because I'm getting a lot of it from referrals. And they're like, oh, so you're just asking for it. And I was like, have I ever asked you for a referral? And they're like, no. And I was like, right, because I don't want to do that. So I'm, I figured out a way to generate referrals without asking. And they're like, so teach it to me. Well, when I started teaching it to those first couple of early clients, what I realized was, oh, there's a process I'm following. I hadn't even identified it exactly, and so I had to teach it to somebody else. So as I started teaching it to those clients early on, and this is back like in 2014, 2015, as I'm teaching it to people early on, I'm paying attention to the fact, oh, I've got five steps. Right. There's just this process and I'm following it. And here's the five steps. Right. And as I started teaching it to them and they started having success, I thought I need a scalability factor. And this is it. And what I found was I love teaching this one, because I get to be a contrarian and I get to be different. And two, because it works and it helps people. I mean, I had one attorney tell somebody who then told me Stacy's growth by referrals program literally saved my practice which meant a lot to me because she was the sole breadwinner for her family. And that was really, really meaningful for not just her business, but for what her business meant to her family. And then having other people saying, this is the worst year we've ever had. And then they get on the program and they'd be like, oh my gosh, we just had the best year we ever had. And 150% of our growth was came from direct from the referrals and from following the process you taught us. So as my clients started having what I refer to as kick butt success, then I realized, okay, more people need access to this information so I created an online program shifted away from that one-on-one coaching practice with productivity and business coaching shifted away from that and really focused in on you know VIP coaching for the people who want the personal touch when it comes to generating their plan their referral generating plan or for those who can't afford that an online version that is less expensive that allows them to get access to this information and to create their own referral generating plan within their business and have success so I didn't know this is where I was going to land, but it's exactly I think where I'm supposed to be and I can bring in all of the expertise that I've had in the past and kind of channel it and funnel it into helping people be successful in this way.
0: Wow. Now, you're not going to get away from this show without <laughs> without telling us the five steps.
1: <laughs> I could have guessed what your question was going to be. <laughs> it would be my pleasure. Okay. So the five steps, so I'm going to give them to you like big picture. Now there are some great resources on my website, which I know we'll talk about at the end, but there's great resource resources on my website that will dive into each of these pieces a little bit deeper. And there's actually an entire, entire article on my website that talks about these five steps. So, you know, we can definitely direct people there.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, but
1: Here's the overview that I will give kind of for what these five steps look like. And what I want you to think about is, is some of these five steps happen at certain periods and some of them are ongoing. So just kind of as I talk to these five steps, think about, okay, some things I just need to know how to do in the moment and some things I need to be able to have an ongoing plan kind of wrapped around. And so the five steps are this. Number one, it starts the same place it always starts. It's one of the, the things I talk about. And when people say, why do you give away this part of information? Because it is inside my paid course, right? It is inside my paid program. But this is the piece I talk freely and openly about because it doesn't, if you can't do this, nothing else matters. If you can't figure this out, you won't need my program. And so step number one is this. You have to know who refers you. You have to know who are your referral sources. And what I don't mean is that anecdotal evidence. You're sitting there kind of remembering, like, because your listeners are listening to this, right? There's someone sitting there like, well, I think Tommy referred me a couple people last year. Like, I'm not talking anecdotal evidence. I'm talking, like, hardcore data, which means you've got to go back through who your clients are, right, and figure out how did they come to you, right? How did those clients come to be clients? How did they first learn about you? Now, bonus, if you can also figure out all the prospects that didn't become clients and how did they, right? How did they come back to you as, how did they first learn about you as well? But you need to identify by name and by name, I mean, first and last by name, who are your referral sources? Or you're probably going to say, if this is your situation, eek, I don't really have a lot of those referral sources. And then you need to be able to identify who should be referring you. And that, co- that process of figuring out where did your clients come from and who are the people who've been referring them to you, or figuring out, or and, in some cases, you may not have enough of them, now I need to know who's actually referring me or who I want to be referring me, what I call soon-to-be referral sources. you got to have that list because what the referral-generating plan in step three that we're going to build is going to be for those people and for all the people that will eventually be on that list but it starts from knowing where you start, like where do you start? So anybody who goes to my program, the very first week they start in the program, right? I do a series of five live coaching calls as people are getting through the modules because I want them to finish, I want them to get success, to, to land in success, and I think my one-on-one t- help helps them propel them faster through the program. And so the very first week they have to tell me, how many referrals did you receive last year? How many referrals have you received so far this year? And how many referral sources do you have now? And then we set a goal based on how many referrals they've received. We set a goal to say, well, how many do we want? And typically I tell folks, at a minimum I want you to double the number. Sometimes I want you to do more than that, triple or quadruple, particularly if your number is low. But I can't define a goal for you if I don't know where we're starting from. So I need to know how many referrals you've received, but I need to know who we're talking about. And if there aren't enough people on that list, I need to teach you the way to add more people to that list. But it starts with identifying our referral sources. Because what we create in step three is going to be for them. But step two is a kind of an earlier process that we have to pay attention to. And that is you have to have an immediate thank you follow-up process in your business that you follow without fail, with total consistency, every single time a referral is actually received. And so you have to be able to think. And you can imagine, Lewis, what I'm not talking about, right? a, a immediate thank you follow-up. Is actually not an email, and it's not really even a phone call. Though a phone call is definitely better than an email. It's actually a handwritten thank you note. Now, what I teach is you've got to know actually, right, what it looks like to put what language we want to put in, you know, that thank you card, right? Because I in step four is what teaches that referral planting seed language because we will never ask for a referral, but we will plant, you know, the way that they can start thinking about us differently. So you've got to know, you've got to have that immediate follow-up thank you process built into your business that you execute on without fail. It's just a process that you've got to follow, right? So step one is we got to know who our referral sources are or who we want them to be. Step two is, is that we have to commit to following a thank you process, the immediate thank you process for when a referral has been received. But what about in between those times when we aren't receiving referrals? Well, we are not interested in keeping in touch, We want to transcend keeping in touch and we want to move into top of mind. And to be top of mind, it means that we have to do outreach or what I call touch points with our referral sources in between the times of receiving referrals that make us memorable and meaningful. And to be memorable and meaningful, it means our touch points are going to be all about them, their referral source. So step three is the what do we do? in between those times of receiving referrals and that's where we build our yearly referral generating plan and within that we follow some platinum principles that i teach of what what these touch points have to look like and what they cannot look like and we talk about that and so we truly understand how are we going to be memorable and meaningful how are we going to transcend keeping in touch to staying top of mind and letting our referral sources know how much we appreciate them because they are the gold in our business right I would say your clients are your silver and your referral sources are your golds. They just are because they bring you new clients in a very easy process. So once we know who our referral sources are, step one, we have an immediate thank you follow up process, step two. We now know the touch points and the outreach we're going to do on a yearly basis for those referral sources, step three. Then we move into step four and step four is, is we've got to plant the right language. We have to plant the right referral seed language, which gets them thinking about us and referrals without ever asking for them. And that I always tell folks that that, that referral planting seed language for me is that secret sauce of the program. And it's figuring out there are some, you know, language that we need that is more situational and in the moment. And then there's some language that we need that directly is the message we're sending out with those touch points we've established in step three that yearly plan we've built we have specific language for that so we've got another language around right how we're going to communicate when it comes to referrals because we're not allowed to ask and then step five is we just got to make sure that we're measuring it and that we're making sure that it's working so we've got to have our metrics in place we've got to be measuring it and we've got to be tracking it so that if something's not working we can unpack what's not working and change it if we need to because again Why do anything if you don't know you're going to get an ROI on it? And this course is built around generating an ROI.
0: All I can say is, do you think you'd be more successful if you had a little more enthusiasm? (laughs) (laughs) That was great. I'm not
1: sure it's possible to stuff more in me. I love this stuff. Like, people ask me to speak speak at a conference, and they were like, we'll give you 60 minutes. And I was like, can I have four hours? No, see.
0: Stacey, if you were any more enthusiastic, I'd be worried that my um my Mac computer would explode. So no, <laughs> this is great stuff. Um can I coax you to give us one example of good seed language?
1: Yes, absolutely. So it's interesting because I don't ever talk about the referral planting seed language. And then I wrote a book and the publisher was like, you got to give them something. <laughs> They're like, you got to tell them what this looks like. So there is language that I do talk about. And in one specific case, I'll give you two, right? So you ask for one, but I want to go above and beyond and I'll give you two. When we are writing a thank you note for someone, right? Most of the time, we're just going to say, thank you so much, right? We love that you are thinking of us or whatever it is, right? The referral planting seed that you need to put in there is that you need to be thanking by name, which means when someone sent you a referral, so like, Louis, if I sent you a referral for Sally, I need to be saying as I write my thank you note to you, thank you for referring Sally to me, right? I need to be very specific to use her name. Now, some, some people may think, oh, I do that already. Excellent, right? Then you're already accomplishing planting seed, this type of planting seed. But a lot of people don't think about actually connecting the word referral and Sally's name together, they may say, thank you for sending me Sally, right? Or I was it was great to meet with Sally. No, I want you to say, thank you for referring Sally to me. And I would prefer you use first and last name, right? So thank you for referring this person to me, right? And then the language goes on to talk about how you are appreciative of them trusting you to help the people that they know and care about, right? So we're assuming there's more of them that they know and care about and that we appreciate them trusting us to help them before they've even referred them to us. And then we always end with making sure we're always offering to help them. How can I help you have a great 2018? Let me know what I can do for you, right? So it's always that idea of we plant the seed by name. We let them think about things I call it in the thinking about things in the plural tense, right? I love helping the people, people being plural, right? That you know and care about. And then always ending with, how can I help you? Right. So that's what, that's the language that should go into your thank you note when you're writing it from an immediacy, right? The other piece is, and another piece I talk about in my book that's not out actually until this, until fall, until October of 2018. But the other piece that I talk about in the book is, um, you need to be able to answer the question, how's business. So, all right, without any prompting, Lewis, truly like, think about this. If I say, Hey, Lewis, how's business? What is your typical response?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, typical response would be, uh, oh, business is fine or business is great. Uh, It would be general, very general.
1: Right. So you'd be like, it's great. It's fine. It's very common, right? Right. And there's nothing ultimately wrong with that response, right, except that it doesn't actually leave an impact. There's nothing impactful about that decision. So I tell folks, you don't need to give them a long answer. Nope. They they just asked how's business. They're not expecting, you know, like a four-paragraph answer. But instead of saying business is great or business is fine, or if we're being really honest, maybe business is overwhelming (laughs) or not going as well, instead of giving those answers, plant a referral seed and just say, business is great. I just received three new clients as referrals and I'm so excited to work with them because I love receiving referrals, right? Mm. So period, I'm not going to go into who my ideal client is. I'm not going to go into who referred them. I'm going to stop talking. And what I'm going to hope is, is that when I say I've just received three new clients and I'm saying that because that should be true. Like don't say I've received three new clients by referral and it's a blatant lie. Like that's not authentic at all, but say something that's true. And that's one thing I talk about like in the book and I kind of go through is like, so maybe you didn't receive three referrals, but maybe business from last year, some of it came through referrals. So say that hey, business is great. You know, last year I received a number of referrals and that's been really great for our business. We love working with people who've been referred to us. Once I can plant the seed and answer that question, the conversation could stop. Or someone could say, well, how are you getting those referrals? Or what are you doing to generate referrals? Right, and at that point, now we've got a conversation and a dialogue going of you being able to talk about why you're referable, how you do great work, right, and that you believe your referral sources are gold to your business, letting that person know, wow, I'll become gold to Lewis if I actually refer him anybody. Now I may never be able to refer someone to you. That's not the point, right? The point is, is that I've planted that seed and seeds do not bloom because I put you in the ground and gave you a little bit of water one time. Seeds bloom because I put you in the ground, covered you with some dirt, put water on you over time, gave you water, Go on, going, on, going, on, going, right? Planted lots of seeds and then some will bloom. And that's the goal. Most of us don't need hundreds of referral sources. We need dozens, a dozen, two dozen. Some people need three or four depending on volume they're after. That is a much more manageable number, but we don't know who those referral sources will always be. So we can put it out there and plant the seed and to see if anything comes from that.
0: I love everything you said except you cannot cover me with dirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay.
1: It's a good thing I didn't say, just cover them with manure, right? Because yeah. <laughs> you plant seeds in manure.
0: Yeah, because then they'll grow faster, you know. That is
1: true.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love this. Okay. Yeah, you really covered some great, great ground here.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I want to know if you invest, you know what, there is another very important aspect of what you do. You uh, you talk about creating a an exceptional client experience. Can you give us a kind of reader's digest summary of what that looks like?
1: Sure. You know, it's funny. I never paid attention to the fact that this was something I needed to be teaching. I always assumed when people came to me to learn about generating referrals without asking and they would either, you know, just, you know, go to my um, articles on my blog or catch my live Facebook show every week that's on Thursdays at noon, Eastern Standard Time. I always just assumed that they had this piece figured out about this client experience. And what I realized is, you know what, let me get back up for a minute. The number one thing you have to have to be referable is to be referable. Like you actually have to provide your clients with exceptional client experience and when I would say that to people, they'd be like, yeah, 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 I got to do great work. Yeah, yeah, great, got it, do good work. I'm like, no, yes, do good work. Actually, do great work, don't do good work. Yes, doing great work, but work is one half of the equation. A client experiences how I make a client feel throughout their journey of working with me, whether it's short-term because they're only with me for 30 days, or I'm a CPA and they're with me forever, right? How I make you feel Doesn't just come from the great work. I do it comes from the second part of the equation or the formula Which is the relationship I build with you And I don't mean we're gonna grab drinks all the time right and if my clients are not in my local city I can't grab drinks with you in anyway, right because you're across the world across the country And so the idea here is is understanding that a client experience to be truly referable is the feeling that people have when they do business with you and it is not just the outcome of the hardware, so to speak, which is the work you do. It's the work plus the relationship you build. And so when I talk to people about the client experience, I'm like, look, you need to understand what a client experience looks like in your business. And D- readers digest version of that is you probably need to know what are the stages in your business, right? What are the stages that a client moves through when they're going through a client experience with you? What are the work and the relationship touch points within each of those stages, right? For most people, all clients are new. And then some clients become active while you're doing the work and then they're done and they have an end date and they move into alumni or a previous client. And some like a CPA, right, or a financial advisor, they're going to be new and then they're going to be ongoing forever because you always want to manage their money or you always want to do their tax return. So know your stages, know your work and your relationship touch points within those stages and make sure that you are actually focused on evoking emotion and a feeling that you want from them by the touch points that you're doing. And then automate this if you can, right? Which means you can delegate some of it. You can outsource some of it. Some of it you're going to have to do yourself. But make sure it's a process. I call it processitizing in your business so that you follow and execute on it for every client. Because for those clients to become referral sources, clients are not the only referral sources. But for clients, which is a big part of your referral sources, for them to become referral sources, average or good work isn't going to be enough, not for them to remember and talk about you, not for you to be top of mind, right? You've got to transcend that and you've got to give them a relationship and a feeling and evoke emotion from them. And that's what people need to be thinking about when they think about their client experience.
0: This is the philosophy behind the company Zappos. I believe the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the motto that they have is we, um, we don't want to satisfy our clients. We want to amaze them, right? You know, yes. it's 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 going above and beyond, and uh, that's wonderful. That's fabulous advice. What is H two H sales?
1: So H2H sales is actually the the type of folks that I focus on that I think are best suited to generate referrals. Lots of people can generate referrals. The methodology that you take to generate referrals really depends on the industry and the business that you're in. My program is specifically focused on people in H-to-H sales, which is human-to-human or handshake-to-handshake. So you can be an online business and generate referrals, right? You can you know, definitely be more transactional and generate referrals. But what I have found is that if you're in H-to-H sales, if you're in human-to-human or handshake-to-handshake, which means your clients probably have to meet you or at least get to know you before they'll decide to become a client, if you're in that type of sales, then you are uniquely positioned to kill it with referrals. And if you're not, well, we need to fix that because it's easiest to generate referrals when you have the opportunity to build relationships. And so if you're seeing your people or doing ongoing work with them because they had to trust you and build a relationship with you to say yes to working with you, then you should be able to leverage that to turn some of those people, though not all, because not all clients will refer to certain, some of those clients, some of those people into referral sources.
0: Mm, wonderful. But because we're expanding globally with online business, you must have a way to do this online as well.
1: So there is, and I'll tell you, you know, my business as a productivity coach grew the the referrals that I was able to grow and the generating plan I put together is specifically for, for H to H salespeople. As I have taken my business more on a national and now with international students in my program on an international platform, right there, I am, to be honest, once again, guinea pig on my own business and figuring out what does this look like to generate referrals. And it does look different in the online space. Um, I think they come for more or less likely opportunities sometimes, but it's still too new for me to tell a online business owner, here's how you're going to generate referrals. All of my experience and all of my expertise and all of my case studies and, re- and results and the hundreds of students that have gone through my program are based on those that are CPAs and attorneys Home builders, photographers, financial advisors, business and life coaches, executive coaches, realtors, commercial broker, commercial real estate brokers, right? They kind of property and casualty insurance agents. It's all those people that are still building relationships face to face. That is truly what my program is for. I wouldn't recommend somebody with an online business go through my program. I have had those people go through them and I think that they do, they do pull out nuggets. And I do have people who go through my program. That their clients and referral sources are across the country. We can still form relationships with them too. Um, but it's not, my program is not specifically positioned for people building an online business. Um, it will probably evolve into that as I'm getting better and better at generating referrals with, with my business now that my business is more online than it is face to face. But the crux of the expertise is really for those that are in h to h sales.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, have you worked at all with network marketers?
1: So it's interesting. I don't necessarily tell folks in network marketing or MLM um, to go through my program. There are absolutely people in the program, and they love it, and they pick up a lot of great things from it. But I, the only reason why I tell someone you may not want to buy my program if you're a network marketer or an an MLM is because I have absolutely no experience in it. And I think if I'm going to sell something and I'm going to put my name on it and put, you know, there's a money back guarantee in my program. If I'm going to do all those things, I better know what I'm talking about. So I'm very clear on who my program is for. And the reality of it is, is I've never been in network marketing or MLM, you know, myself, so I don't want to speak to experience that I've had. Though I say that, and yes, there are definitely those folks that are in my program and because they have to build relationships too, but I'm just really clear to say, you could get a lot out of this, but that's not necessarily who I'm going after when I promote the program because I don't have the expertise. Some of them say, so what? You've got good information. We want it. And so that works for them. Um, But at the same time, I don't go out there and say, this is for MLM or network marketers.
0: Well, I don't know if you've heard this before, but I'm going to tell you because I'm a network marketer. Okay. You have, I'm a network marketer. I'm in network marketing myself. You have the expertise because when you started talking about all the stuff that people are taught, you're supposed to ask people all the time for referrals. You're supposed to ask someone who has said no to you for (laughs) a referral. And there is a way to do it. There is a way to do it that feels more comfortable, but most network marketers have to get over the discomfort of that and when you said that they're led to believe that you know basically it's their mindset that's wrong as opposed to no well, maybe there's a better way to do it that is spot on and I think um, you don't have to know about network marketing pay plans and how people earn, um, exponential income. But the fact of the matter is that so much of what network marketers do is based on exactly what you've been talking about, asking for referrals. So,
1: you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting. I find a lot of people fall into that bucket. And when I look at the people who buy my program, I always can kind of categorize them in two buckets. Like, And it doesn't matter the industry. And so you're right. And I've heard exactly what you said with some of the folks that are network marketing. You've been overtaught how to sell, right? I mean, so there's one bucket of people who come to my program that they have been through more sales training than they care to ever admit and they don't ever want to go through more. And they have, it's like, it's like being a, a banker at a bank. Like I had a banker come up to me and he was like, I've been through more sales training than I ever want to admit. And this was the best thing I've ever heard because it's different. Right. And so there's this group of people who buy my program because they're like, please tell me there's a different way to do it because everything I've heard and everything I've been told is not working or I don't like it. And then there's a second, and I think to your point, network marketers fall into it. And then there's a second bucket of people who buy my program. And those are my attorneys and my CPAs and my home builders. And those are the people who got into business because they're amazing at their craft, at their skill. And what comes along with that is running a business and bringing in new clients. And so they haven't been overly exposed to sales. So when they start looking around for sales training, they're like, ooh, not all this works well for me is there a different way? And then they find out about me and they're like, ooh, this feels less like sales and more like building relationships and being authentic. I'll go with Stacy's program. So it's funny that you said that about everything network marketers have been told because they definitely fall into one of the two buckets of the people who buy my program.
0: Yeah. No, and especially that one where you've spoken to a prospect, they've clearly said they're not interested And, well, I mean, you can do it, you know, like I said, uh, by simply saying, uh, thank you very much. Do you know anyone else who would benefit greatly from this? And, you know, to tell you the truth, sometimes you'd be surprised. People will give you a name and it'll turn out to be a great referral. But by and large, that's not, it doesn't feel natural, like you said, you know. So I love what you, because what you're doing is setting people up so they're doing everything right for that person. And that person then makes the decision on their own to give you a referral. And, you know, that's uh, that's what they call posture. You've created great posture for yourself.
1: And, you know, it's necessary for that person, for the longevity of that person to send you referrals. And that's one of the big reasons I tell people not to ask. And, Louis, you're absolutely right. There are people who ask and would be very comfortable using that language you just provided. And I always say, please don't let me break something that's working for you. If it works, work it. Right? right. But if it's if you're not willing to ask or if it's not working for you or you ask and every 15th person provides you with somebody and every 50% of those people actually turn into something and it's not worth it to you, right? Right. Then, then there's just a different option and you don't have to ask and you can do other things. But I'll tell you, when people go through my program who are used to asking, the first thing they'll say is, I feel like I'm leaving opportunities on the table. And I always say, are you 100% sure that was an opportunity to begin with? And they're like, no, right? And they're saying no. And I'll like, say, right. And if you ask, will you eliminate them ever giving you anything else again, because now you've only prompted and taught them to give you a referral because you're asking for it. And if you don't see them again, right, you're not gonna ask them for it. And then if you do see them again, and you're always asking, what do you become? The always asking guy, right? The always asking girl. And we don't want that. So the reality is, is that yes, if it's working for you, please work it, right? I don't want you to lose opportunities that you want, but if it's not working for you, or you think it could be better, then that is when my program is a compliment, or in that case, a complete rewrite of your mentality of when it comes to generating referrals.
0: Mm, love it. Love it. What is your favorite book?
1: That is such an unfair question. I am <laughs> the daughter
0: <laughs> I am no. the
1: daughter of an author. And so of course my father is my favorite author, right? Steve
0: wait, Brown. but wait a minute. She... But 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 he writes fiction. Yeah,
1: I know. Do, do you, you know ever... thing? I what? don't even read fiction.
0: There you go. So I don't even
1: I, I read all of his because I'm a dutiful daughter and of course I would and I always read his manuscripts before they went to print because he talked about strong female leads and so he wanted to make sure he had my opinion on that. But so my, that's my favorite author would be my father and I have read all of his books. But if you're asking for my favorite book, I do think it's unfair because I love to read and I think there are so many fabulous books out there. But one book that I think had a huge impact on me, maybe two, would be Emith Revisited by Michael Gerber and then The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. I think those two books are excellent books for anyone to read, but to be honest, I think they're particularly important for people who want to go further. That's The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, or for those that want to make sure they create freedom in their business. And that's E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. So two great books, but particularly great books for entrepreneurs.
0: I'm reading uh, e-book. Um, not e-book. <laughs> E-Myth Mastery by Michael Gerber right now. Now, The Big Leap, uh, the first name is Gay. Uh, what's gay. the first?
1: Gay. G-A-Y.
0: Hendrix. Yep. G A Y Hendrix.
1: Yep. So, yep. G A Y and then Hendrix.
0: And is it H E N D R I X or C K S?
1: I think it's C K S.
0: Okay, I'll look it up.
1: It is an oldie but goodie.
0: Wonderful. Yep. And how about a favorite quote?
1: You know, there's a quote that we use a lot in our household. And I, I do it a lot because of our kids, but I even have a t shirt um, that says it as well because I sometimes think I need the reminder. And you know, when we took custody of our nephew, we took we have three kids now and we took custody of our nephew a couple of years ago when he was seven. He's now 10. And we created since we became a family of five, we created the, the Randall family values. And there are five values. And it's the last one that I use a lot with our kids. All of them are important, but it's the last one I use with my kids. And that is to be brave. And so I teach it a lot to my kids to be brave, to try things that they don't want to try. And I, t- I remind myself of it all the time, to be brave. I have a T-shirt that says, be brave. Um, it's not a quote by anybody in particular. I just think it's a great reminder, a great statement to remind ourselves that being complacent is easy. Falling back into the default habits of what we know of comfort is easy. But being brave, that is where true things happen. That is where true success comes. That is where true learning happens. So my quote would be for your listeners to remind themselves daily, if not hourly, if needed, to be brave.
0: I love it. So if daily, if not hourly, if needed, right?
1: Right, be brave.
0: Now, you have a book coming out. I do. What's yes, it'll. Term?
1: It's called Generating Business Referrals Without Asking. It'll be out October sixteenth of two thousand and eighteen. I think the ebook sales will go online in July. I think July third is the date, and so pre-sales, of course, will start before then. Um, the it, I don't know when this recording will happen, but the website at some point that will be live is um. It'll be um, generatingbusinessreferrals.com. Um, But, of course, there'll be lots of information about the book on my main site, which is growthbyreferrals.com.
0: So, Generating Business Referrals Without Asking.
1: That's the name of the book, yes.
0: And it's Stacy Brown Randall. Yes, that's my
1: name.
0: Wonderful. And now, yes, to contact you, it's at which website again?
1: So, they want to go to growthbyreferrals.com growthbyreferrals.com, that's referrals with an S, we want lots of them, not one, growthbyreferrals.com. And on there, they can find information to download on the seven deadly sins of generating referrals, four reasons you don't get referrals and what to do about it. They can also find my articles. It'll teach them more information about how we generate referrals and what it looks like. And that's, and then, of course, more information about the book will be on there as well.
0: Love that. How about final thoughts?
1: You know, I'd say my final thoughts would be that if what you're doing is working and your business is growing and it is sustaining itself and it is growing and you are pleased with where it is, then keep the path, right? Don't lose sight of what you know that works. And if it's not, and if you think it could be better or you think it could be easier or you think there just may be a different way to take the time to investigate the different way. I don't mean this bright, shiny object. What I mean is is some true reflection on where you want your business to go. And if you want it to go in a different direction or if you want it to be different or to grow differently, then take the time to invest in yourself. Take the time to do that personal development or that business development and make it happen because we have put one life. So we better enjoy it while we can.
0: Thank you so much. You have really given great value with... Enormous energy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you.
0: Thank you again. Thank you, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Stacy Brown-Randall. She delivered amazing value today, and please pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com and at that website, claim your free gift that I created for you, a downloadable ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Our sponsor is Audible and they offer to the listeners of this show any downloadable well, they're all downloadable, but any audiobook of your choice, and you can choose from more than 180,000 titles. We mentioned some exciting and powerful books in the podcast today. By all means, get one of those or choose any other title that you'd like. At the same time, you get one month free trial of all of Audible service. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. What we learned today about asking for referrals in a business, and referrals are the lifeblood of most businesses, what we learned was invaluable. But the one thing I want you to think about for next week something to ponder and put into action. Stacey and I talked about burning your boats. She explained the historical reference to that phrase. I have had firsthand experience with that. And what it simply means is, if you are looking to make an important decision that will help you change your life, change it for the better, and you're stuck because you're afraid. You almost feel paralyzed. Oftentimes, it's because you're holding on to other options in your mind that make you feel safe. We're holding on to things that may even live in the past. And the only way to move forward is to cut all other options off, literally burn your boats And take that leap of faith and move forward. When I was deciding if I should move from New York to Montreal many years ago, it was a big move. I was a native New Yorker. I knew New York. I had employment in New York. I had friends there. And when I got to Montreal, I knew it would have been an exciting new phase of my life, and I wanted to make the move but at the last minute, I was frozen. I actually spent an entire sleepless night before flying back to New York. I was there in Montreal just visiting to check it out. And at dawn, when I was standing on someone's balcony watching the sun come up over the mountain in Montreal, I realized, oh, I want to make a decision only if I have some kind of guarantee of the outcome. Can't do that. So the only thing to do is to close my eyes and dive into the darkness, do a free fall and trust that I would land on my feet. That's what I did. And I immediately felt free. And the result was a whole new chapter of my life. In fact, many chapters that are so rich and so exciting and they never would have happened unless I had burnt my boats. So if you're facing a decision like that, begin to make the change by asking, how can I change my story and change my life?
1: Tune in to the next
0: episode of Luis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.